Welcome to the Share Life Podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. And this Listen to Learn discussion on the Share Life Podcast, I'm speaking with David Coises. David, say hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, David is, uh, he holds a PhD, Government and International Studies from the University of Notre Dame. He taught undergraduate political science for 30 years and is an author of two books and multiple chapters and articles. In a previous episode of the Share Life podcast, David and I discussed his book, Political Visions and Illusions, a surveying Christian critique of contemporary ideologies where he synthesizes uh, ideologies that he labels as idolatries of liberalism, conservatism, nationalism, democratism, socialism into a larger meta story. In this conversation, we're discussing geographic sovereignty. To whom does the land belong? This is a root question that came to my mind when Russia explicitly invaded Ukraine in, earlier in 2020, 2022. Also with Kuwait in the 90s and Taiwan now, we have situations with conflicting claims of geographic and, and populist uh, sovereignty. In the United States, we have differences in the ownership of American land between settlers and natives and past conflicts about whether the states are obligated to remain in the Union or whether America can break off from Great Britain. So to start out, David, I want to talk about what substantiates territorial sovereignty. Some might argue that it's based on who claimed the land first. Others would say it's based on the power to take the land. And others, like Elon Musk, might posit that it's based on what you call in your book, democratism, who people voluntarily choose to be their sovereign authority. What is the best way to understand the ethics and dynamics around national sovereignty? And do we have any transcendent resources to tap into for this conflict? Or are we simply stuck with these matters being settled by the most powerful party? War is the ultimate Supreme Court, as Elon Musk recently tweeted. So I'll throw it to you. Where do you want to start? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. Which which question would you like me to answer first? I think well, I just talked about the idea yeah. of territorial sovereignty. Right. What What okay. is it? And, and, uh, and how do we make sense of that as just a starting point? Right. And, and, and sovereignty is really very important, I think, in, in the modern age and, and beginning around, oh, maybe just over 500 years ago, uh, at the time of the Reformation, the time of the consolidation of various national states at the Western periphery of Europe, there was this assertion of, of, of sovereignty over particular territories, because during the Middle Ages in the West, um, you know, there, there wasn't really such a thing as sovereignty. You know, so so um, um, you could. How, how did they con conceptualize it, or or? Well, well, they didn't really. It 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 was really uh, you know, it, under feudalism, you had um, various uh, lords. Uh, they might have different titles that controlled various lands, but they might control those lands. Uh, you know, they might have um, a jurisdiction, if you're maybe ownership even. In their own right, but some other lands they might have as um, as vassals of a uh, of a king, you know. So mm -hmm. so the, the 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 in the first centuries after the Norman conquest in 1066, uh, you know William the Conqueror um, held England as as king in his own right after 1066. But as Duke of Normandy, he was a vassal of the King of France. So to talk about undisputed sovereignty within within Normandy, that would not have made sense in the context of the Middle Ages. And it wasn't really until the time, maybe the, the close of the 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, that you had the assertion of, of something that we now know as territorial sovereignty, asserted at the beginning by various kings, by various monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain, 
you know, the the um, uh, the, the, the Bourbon monarchs in, in France, the, the Tudors and the Stuarts in England and, and, and Scotland. And so the notion of this territorial sovereignty of, uh, of, of sovereignty over a specific territory, which was undisputed, that was something that really came about. It was an, I don't know if I was exactly an innovation because it may have existed in some sense during the Roman era, but, yeah. it, but it certainly came back during the, uh, the early modern period. Yeah. And what was there anything you can kind of tie it to in terms of what, what was the catalyst for for that becoming something um, that was thought of and, and uh, talked about and used? Yeah, um, it's I, I, there are a number of, of events that, that came together. Um, you know, the the um, I think the discovery of the new world had had something to do with that as well. And of course, the Spaniards got a, a head start in that also the portuguese as well and in the in, at the end of the 15th century they persuaded the pope to um, um allow them to divide the world between yeah. <laughs> between spain and portugal you know the, the treaty of tordesillas uh you know which obviously um other uh western european states uh um did not find that particularly persuasive and decided <laughs> to stake their own claims and so forth mm. but you know the idea of of staking a claim over a particular territory uh, for a particular ruler, uh, you know that 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 was a catalyst to the consolidation of, of states even within Europe, uh, especially the Western periphery of Europe. Yeah, and was that um, was it primarily geographically oriented, or was it kind of people oriented, like these people belong to this king, or was it specifically yeah. and explicitly geographic? Well, both. I think the, I think they, they coincided in very in very large measure. Uh, you know, the Reformation played a role as well. Um, the the inventing invention of the printing press, standardization of of languages was uh, was certainly a catalyst uh, to this as well. Uh, you know, everyone knows that the um, oh, RP the re, re, uh, received um, pronunciation of, of English. Uh, yeah. you know, which 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 was the monopoly. I don't know if that's a monopoly of the BBC announcers. It's not the case anymore. You know, over the last fifty years, uh, if you listen to <laughs> people on, on the the British Broadcasting Corporation, you'll you'll hear a variety of accents, which was never the case up until maybe about the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies. Uh, but you know, standardization of languages as well. We take that for granted in North America, but in Europe, uh, you know, from one side of a country to the next you could have vastly different um dialects of the same language certainly that's the case with english it's the case with german it's the case with with, with french um the dutch language it's it's the same so all of those were catalysts to a kind of standardization within particular territories of language of uh, uh, of religion as well uh, of um of of um uh oh of services i suppose um laws that would extend over the whole of a particular area as yeah. well and and Napole certainly napoleon's um, efforts to conquer europe were a catalyst to the um the standardization of laws across large swaths of of europe and, and elsewhere yeah and would you add or tie into the you know the idea of uh sovereignty in the sense of um people are as history has unfolded there's a, been a sense of individual sovereignty, like me as a person has my own sovereignty and, and, and I'm not just a member of a group. And I think over history, you can see that that individuality starts to grow. Um, does that play a role at all in this? Um, or is that unrelated? 
No, I think it does. And that, that has very much to do with the rise of liberalism in the early modern era as well. So, you know, for with respect to um, the, the liberalism is basically tantamount to individualism. The individual uh, really comes to be sovereign. In that kind of a context, um, uh, it, it seemed as though the only um, counterpole to the sovereignty of the individual was the sovereignty of the state. So in liberalism in the early modern era and, and really, you know, right up into the 20th, 21st centuries, uh, you have this notion that society is, is made up of, of the individual on the one hand and the state on the other. And in many respects, you know, they're, they're, they're not really opposites because in many respects, individualism and statism go together. And I think nobody has showed this more, um, um, uh, more uh, eloquently than Patrick Deneen did in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, that was, that was yeah. published uh, a few years ago. Brilliant okay. book. I would recommend a reading of that. Yeah, yeah, I've read it and lots of great uh -huh. insights. So it sounds like what you're saying is the the sovereignty of the individual as that developed um, in and in, in after the sovereignty of of kingdoms started to shape. Yeah. Now you kind of have a third dynamic, which is now you have I guess rights or you have some sort of laws that are um, a barrier between the individual and the state. You know, essentially protecting the individual from the state, particularly in America. You know, property rights and so on and so forth. Is that a good way to, to sort of understand that? Yeah, protection of the individual from the state, but as liberalism progressed over the centuries, the state became a, um, um, uh, how should we say, the state became a catalyst for an expansion of the rights of individuals. Mm -hmm. you know, so so in the, 19, the 1940s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his um, speech on four freedoms, you know, the freedom of, from fear, freedom from want is something that he, he talked about as well. And that's probably the most memorable one. Freedom from want is something that the, the state actually has to intervene in some way to try to guarantee that freedom. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess to kind of maybe add another layer to this, um, when you kind of look, when you look at the Jewish tradition and you look at the Israelites and also going back to to the story of Adam and Eve and, and that dynamic of, of God's um, giving them the directive to, uh, to, to populate and, and essentially steward, steward the world. Like how, how would you tie in that, uh, that tradition's um, resources into this conversation of geographic sovereignty or would you? Well, I think, I think we could. I, what, what I would say, and this is what I argue in my second book, We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God, that, that the image of God at the very beginning um, constituted a kind of grant of authority, a grant of authority to God's, God's image, to, to, to human beings um, over, over each other to a very large degree, you know, depending on the office, the specific office that we hold, uh, but over the rest of creation as well. And so authority is, is always um, authority under, uh, you know, so we are authorized to do something. We have authority, we are authorized, but if we are authorized, that always implies that there is someone or something that authorizes to do that mm -hmm. thing. So authority Uh, you know, for for us who are, are believers, are Christian believers, we believe that all authority comes from God. Now, in the early modern era, sovereignty was seen as something that originates with a sovereign. 
So mm -hmm. it's it's a way in many respects of a kind of protest against God. You know, we no longer believe that God, um, um, well, maybe he exists, but maybe he's very far away. This is what the deists believe. Yeah. Uh, that God has set the world in motion. He's um, retired from the scene and watch watching. He's not directly happens. intervening day to day, so to speak. Yeah. No, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. we we um, you know that we are sovereign. We have this kind of um, of of kind of godlike uh, um, rule over over the earth and over other human beings. And sovereignty came to be very important for the early modern thinkers. People like Thomas Hobbes, uh, Jean Baudin in France, the Hugo Grotius or or Hertigroot in, in, in as the Dutch would, would call it. Yeah. Uh, you know, that sovereignty is very important for understanding politics. But if they are distancing themselves from or eliminating God as sovereign, what are they basing their their theories upon? What foundation are they working from? Well, this is this is where individuals come in, because in the mm -hmm. in the early modern liberalism, you know, well, where where is authority going to come? Where is sovereignty going to come? Well, it turns out it comes from the people in some sense. Mm -hmm. So even Thomas Hobbes, who 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 um, you know who who favors the this uh, um, a very strong um, single ruler who will be able to lord it over the people. Uh, in the frontispiece of the Leviathan, which is his book that he published in the middle of the, of the 17th century, uh, in the Leviathan, if you look at the, the illustration in the frontispiece, you see this ruler, um, th this giant who's, uh, who's towering over the landscape. But if you look at him more carefully, you'll see that he is made up of crowds of, of people, crowds of human beings. Yeah. This is the way that, that Hobbes recognized that somehow sovereignty comes from the people. Hobbes was by no means a Democrat, but, uh, but, but much later, the implications of, of Hobbes' worldview, of his philosophy, were taken in, in somewhat different directions by, 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 um, by John Locke and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau in France. Yeah. So, so for those that would attribute to sovereignty ultimately to God, essentially God is... Um, through the Judeo-Christian tradition has has an, given us authority over different realms or or spheres, I think you say in, in your book, um, like family, let's take, you know, there's authority of, of family and different roles in the family and an order to how that works. And then what you're saying from the liberal side is essentially that authority is derived from the individual. And that seems logically to drive us to the, it seems like if the individual is the sovereign, the logical conclusion um, and I, I've been thinking about this recently. Um, I feel like in a way we've sort of uh, embraced a, a religion of pantheism where we've made ourselves the gods, right? And it, it is the individuals, the, the the individual sovereigns. Is is that a helpful way to contextualize it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, or maybe, maybe polytheism perhaps, you know, because yeah, yeah. there's so many of us, you know, and if each of us is going to become a god, somehow yeah. we have to uh, we have to genuflect in the direction of the, of of the individual, the people, the nation, or however we decide to uh, to to style yeah. that collectivity. Now, what would you say that Jesus uniquely uh, shifts that idea of sovereignty um, when he arrives on the scene and through through his mission? You know, perhaps you know one thing that comes to mind is the idea of um, 
that God's kingdom is near. The good news is God's kingdom, but there is a separate kingdom that's outside of this world. Would you, what would you speak to that part of it? Well, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, and, and, you know, I think Jesus coming into the world does change things because he, he, he has redeemed the world. We, we haven't seen the full um, effects of redemption yet because we're still living in between the times. We're living between, between his first coming and, and his second coming. And the second coming, of course, is something that, that we await in, in the future. We don't know when that's, when that's going to come, uh, you know, but, uh, but, but we, we recognize that the world is, is, is ultimately redeemed through, through Jesus Christ. And, and the full fruits of that are still awaiting us as we await um, God's seventh day when we enter into God's rest at that point and, and rest from, from the work that he has given us at um in, in 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 the present age but but we also recognize that even from the beginning uh, implicit in the very creation is that uh, is that the god god is the ruler of creation and uh, what happened in the garden uh, with our first parents in the garden in genesis chapter three is basically uh their efforts to style themselves as gods so you know pro- what, what is the first sin well, you know, I've sometimes thought, well, there's a pride or is it idolatry? But it yeah. turns out that I'm I'm not sure that, that that's a distinction that 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 has a lot of um, um, salience because you know pride, when when we when we become prideful, we are basically uh, making a pretense to 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 godlike supremacy, to godlike mm-hmm. sovereignty, and in the in the modern age, you know, the, the this assertion of sovereignty. It's not really new, you know, the way that it that it manifested itself in the early modern period. That was new. That was fresh. That was innovative, if, if you will. Yeah. But the pretense on the part of human beings to be gods, that's something that has existed from the very beginning. So even in the Old Testament, we see Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king of the Babylonians who, uh, who conquered yeah. Judah and took its people into captivity. Uh, you know, well, he's basically making a pretense to to godlike authority. In Psalm eighty-two, in Psalm eighty-two, we see uh, um, we see God addressing uh, apparently earthly rulers who style themselves as gods, but they are treating the poor, they're treating the vulnerable, they're treating the people unjustly. They're not treating them in the way that they should, precisely because they see themselves as gods, and yeah. they're trying to lord it over. Uh, the people that they are that they are um, that they are ruling. So you yeah. know that, that's something that it's, it's existed from the very beginning, but it took on a particularly modern um, shape uh, around around five centuries ago. So how would you distinguish the ideology of liberalism between that? Because is, is the liberalism simply simply a systemic way of of, of uh, giving that structure in a political sense? It's 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 one form. That um, that this secular ideology, this 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 ideology of sovereignty in the modern age, is one form that it took, um, uh, and 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 it's continued to develop over the last um, over the last um, what four or five centuries. Yeah. Okay. So, I think the key, a, a key question really it comes down to to where do we believe that sovereignty is derived, right? Right. And and if it's the individual, if it's God, um, based on that answer, it's, it's going to shift how we contextualize things. And I think in your book, Political Visions and Illusions, you're essentially saying these different ideo- these different ideologies sort of manifest um, different uh, different ways that that plays out, right? 
Exactly. No, that that's right. Yeah. So you know, and and you know, if if you say that the individual is sovereign, you still have to account for community in some way. And of course, liberals have historically said, well, communities are simply the aggregations of individuals who have come together for you know, their own chosen purposes, and they um, they are within their uh, their rights to um, uh, to uh, take back this commission that they've given to their communities and to form mm -hmm. other communities and to do whatever they, they want, uh, you know. So that that's liberalism's way of of accounting for it. If we get into democratism. You know, it's the democratic people that are ultimately sovereign. Yeah, we find that going back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, we find that in 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 in, in very um, seminal form in in Hobbes and Locke as well. Yeah, um, you know. So, and it, if, but if, in some ways, it, the democratism would be a group of individuals that have this shared desire, right? <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, and and you know, nationalism. It's the same way. You know, nation um, is a is a kind of conglomeration of individuals. Now, nationalists tend to be much more, uh, much more collectivist than uh, than liberals would be. Even though yeah. the end result might 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 uh, the, the result might end up in the same place. But, you know, socialism is is the economic class. It's, you know, economic solidarity is something that, that holds us together. So you know the, the uh, but but somehow the the um, the architects of sovereignty um, in the early modern period had to find some source of authority. Yeah. That source of authority, you know, they could no longer rely on God because God was, was removed from the picture. The source of authority had to be something within us in some way, something within God's creation. Yeah. So when you think about, when we think about sovereignty, then is there, is, you know, Fundamentally, is it similar at a small level than it would be at a large level, like me and my neighbors versus um, you know these countries that are that are battling between each other, or are there unique differences other than scale that that play out in the in the national scale? Well, I think it I think it has to do with will, ultimately. You know the 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 will, what I want, you know what what I want as an individual, or what we want as a collectivity. You know, mm -hmm. so so. You know, is is the state? Um, the early liberals said that the state is the result of a social contract. Individuals come together to begin a political community of some sort, and they invest their rulers with uh, with a commission to basically do what they want them to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas I, I think a biblical uh, Christian worldview would say that no, the state is a specific community that's called by God to do justice, to do public justice. In God's world, uh, you know, and but justice, uh, the various political ideologies have a great deal of difficulty making sense of justice as a transcendent norm. Yeah, something that's irreducible to the wills of individuals or some collectivity. Yeah. So I guess I'd be what. So what are the specific resources that we can that are transcendent that we can tap into? Uh, for navigating these conflicts other than the ideologies themselves yeah well well different traditions have tried to come up with different ways to do this you know so in the roman catholic tradition people will talk about natural law but you know natural law is not necessarily a um, um the um uh the monopoly of roman catholics because there have been other you know it, it has its origins in stoicism you know yeah. ultimately in plato as well if you if you go far enough back you know, so natural law um, 
uh, Christians on the side of the Reformation are more likely to talk about, about creation order, although that's not something that Karl Barth, you know, the, the major <laughs> theological figure of the 20th century, he didn't like this notion of creation order. You know, that, Why to, is that? Well, he, he thought it took away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. You know, mm, in so, what way? So, um, well, I don't want to get into that because it's kind of a yeah, complicated yeah. Okay. theological yeah, yeah. issue. So, you know, you might, you, you know, there are plenty of people who have written on that. I can't claim to be an, uh, a, <laughs> um, an expert on Karl Barth's theology, but uh, you yeah, know, suffice yeah. it to say that that not all Protestants will necessarily go for for creation order. You know, if if you're a Kantian, and I think Kant has been far more influential in the modern modern era. You know, so Kant was a liberal; he was an individualist, but okay. but he but in order to try to find a way of binding people together to make uh, to come up with an an ethical system that that people could agree on he came up with something called a categorical imperative okay. categorical imperative was something that that presumably um would uh enable us to cooperate for 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 shared purposes you know so so we have to engage in this very um um elaborate form of ethical reasoning that would enable us to come up with universal principles that would that would be binding on everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, John Rawls' a theory of justice and his political liberalism is this very much in the Kantian tradition. And John Rawls, uh, the Harvard political philosopher, very um, influential in the in the latter part of the 20th century and into the first part of the 21st century as well. You know, so so basically, it, it means that we have to have people who are Almost like philosopher king, this might get us, get us back to get us back to Plato again, but yeah. people who can think through the implications of our ethical choices and be able to come up with, you know, it's not just the will, it's not just the, you know, what we want, um, uh, it's not just, uh, you know, the the, uh, our, we're not just creatures of restless desires in the way that Hobbes understood us to be, but Kant would uh, and and his successors would come up with ethical principles uh, worked out by philosophical types like John Rawls and, and so forth, and, and would, would be able to come up with these principles on which we, in principle, if we are rational human beings, could agree. And that's the way that we could somehow come together and be able to, co to, to come yeah. together and cooperate. So, so that what that kind of informs me in terms of the, the, the geographic sovereignty topic is, yeah. If we sort of agree to this larger set of rules, whether it's natural law or these sort of de further developed ideas, um, you know, we can have a bit of harmony. And I, I think if we look at the Western world, we generally have that. But when you have a paradigm like the Western liberal democracy, now it's going up against someone like Russia or China who have a fundamentally different uh, viewpoint, that clash becomes more obvious. Those assumptions are not the same, right? That's right. And this is where, you know, um, Kant wrote a, um, an essay called Perpetual Peace. You know, he thought that he would be able to come up with these these rules that would enable countries to, to live side by side. OK, and of course, we do have the United Nations. That's something that, that started after the end of the Second World War. We have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was put together by such people as um, as Charles Malik of, of Lebanon, Jacques Maritain, um, Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, you know other luminaries uh, that, that, who believed that it was possible to come up with a kind of rules-based international order. You know we do have something along those, those lines. We have the United Nations. We have a whole um, stack of United Nations um, uh, resolutions on various issues such as Israel-Palestine, 
uh, um, issue. Uh, you know, the, my, my father's um, home island of Cyprus is divided and has been since 1974 between Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, uh, Turkish Cypriots in the north and Greek Cypriots in, in the south. You know, there there's some UN resolutions on the Cyprus issue as well. But it's also true that, um, that um, as Samuel Huntington pointed out in the, in the 1990s, that, um, um, that, that the world is divided into various um, religiously based civilizations. Yeah. And you know what what is assumed in one civilizational area is not necessarily going to be assumed in another civilizational area. And that complicates efforts to put together a rules-based international order. Yeah. Well, and, and in one of Putin's recent speeches, it seems very clear that he is uh, rejecting this world order um, and, and, and also sees it as highly corrupting. Um, and so when you're talking about paradigm clashes at that level, the rejection of the world order and want someone wanting to establish a new world order, is that a legitimate pushback or is he taking too many steps uh, going too far in that regard? Well, yeah, um, you know, uh, there, there, there are a number of components that can go into answering that question. And, and uh, I think what I will say that as far as Putin is concerned, uh, you know, he is drawing on this Russian tradition that some people have called Eurasianism, uh, you know, as opposed to the Western orientation of Peter the Great and some of his successors, you know, like maybe Alexander II, the one who, who liberated the serfs in the 1860s, you know, he would be seen as more of a Westernizer. I think uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was a more Western-leaning figure as well. Um, Yeltsin was kind of a transitional figure. Uh, Putin is not a Western-leaning figure at all. I think that's that's become yeah. more obvious. I think that was already present at the beginning of the century, but I think it's become even more, uh, it's, it's become more obvious um, especially after he simply uh, walked into Crime the Crimean Peninsula on the Black Sea and took it over and, and held his sham referendum to yeah. incorporate it into the Russian Federation. You know, so this Eurasian uh, vision is that's a um, an historic um, uh, worldview that has captured that has vied with this Westernization uh, for control of Russia. Uh, yeah. you know, the, this Eurasian uh, vision is that somehow this Russia's destiny under God, you know, or under, you know, historical determinism, you know, if you're going back <laughs> to the Soviet period, but the destiny of Russia is to is to knit together this diversity of people in the Eurasian continent, holding them together into this grand imperial uh, um, entity. And yeah. that's what, 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 what Putin is drawing on. You know, so it's not, you know, what the West they don't care about the West. They want to see um, Russia um, as being wholly Russia. Uh, you know, Russia is its own civilization and the rest of the world, mm. you know, the, the, is, they're pretty much excluded from, from Russia's viewpoint. Uh, Patriarch Kirill of the, uh, the Patriarch of Moscow um, is, is, uh, is, uh, adheres to this vision as well. You know, maybe for very cynical reasons. Um, you know, he's basically Vladimir Putin's lapdog. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, you know, for his allegiance to to Christianity seems to come in second place to yeah. his um, allegiance to Vladimir Putin. 
So, you know, but this is this is something that goes back in Russian history. Nicholas I, uh, he was basically a kind of um, Eurasianist, if you will, in their own ways. I think, um, well, Alexander III, who is the father of the last Tsar, he was something of a Eurasianist. Possibly Nicholas II as as well, but Nicholas was also had ties to other royal families in Europe, you know the Danish um, um, the Danish monarchy and also the British monarchy. Uh, George V, the late Queen's grandfather, was Nicholas II's first cousin. They they yeah. actually looked very much alike. Uh, they they closely resembled each other. So, but nevertheless, this this Eurasianism is something which has been a part of Russia for a very long time. Mm. So I'd like to dive in more specifically into the Russia and Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, and kind of diet, talk about geographic sovereignty from that particular um, situation. So hopefully you can sort of pull some of these ideas into more specifics. But in 1992, Russia began its modern era annexation project by taking part of Moldova and Georgia. In 2008, they'd take more of Georgia. And then 2014, they'd take parts of Ukraine. And in early 2022 of this year, Russia would try and take all of Ukraine, although unsuccessfully. Recently annexed portions of Ukraine under the pretext that it was what those locals wanted was held and uh, signed off by Putin. Uh, Max Seddon, Moscow bureau chief for the Financial Times, recently quoted Putin saying, southeastern Ukraine is actually part of Russia because the Russian state's predecessors ruled it. It was part of the Russian empire and because the USSR SSR fought to free it from the Nazis in World mm -hmm. War II. So how do we make sense of this uh, situation between Russia and Ukraine and Russia's uh, claim to the land? It's a very complicated, um, it's a very complicated uh, issue. And, and there's a sense in which, you know, I'm not a fan of Putin by any means, you know, I, yeah. I think he's a, he's a, I think he's a, a troublemaker. I think he's basically a kind of terrorist, uh, you know, international criminal, if, if you will. But, you know, there, there is some legitimacy to the claim. Uh, because in the, at the end of the 18th century, uh, Empress Catherine the Great uh, conquered the lands that are now southern and eastern Ukraine from the Ottoman Turks. And, and she called it Novorossiya, you know, New Russia, and began settling Russians there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were some people that, that remained, like the Crimean Tatars, that, that speak a Turkic language. You know, related in some fashion to the to the um, to people living in Turkey and Azerbaijan and Central Asia and so forth. But the um, um, at least linguistically, uh, but that that area was uh, was Novorossiya. Uh, you know, the boundaries that were um, set between the various Soviet republics. There were at, at its height there were sixteen republics. Um, in the last decades of the Soviet Union, there were 15 republics, and um, Soviet leaders would would draw the boundaries wherever they wanted to. So Nikita Khrushchev, in the middle of the 1950s, arbitrarily took uh, the Crimean Peninsula, which had been part of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, one of these 15 republics, and turned it over to Ukraine. Uh, you know why? Because the residents wanted to go. No. They weren't because most of the re the residents of of Crimean Peninsula were Russian were and are still Russian speaking, and uh, you know so so at the breakup of the Soviet Union, you had all of these border conflicts that um, that burst into the open. Now Russia did not actually take uh, part of Moldova in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that that you had Russian speakers in an area called Transnistria because it's the sliver of territory um, along the edge of Moldova, between Moldova and Ukraine, largely Russian speaking. Tiraspol is the largest city 
in that area, and they called themselves the Transnistrian Soviet Socialist Republic. <laughs> so it's a little little bit of the Soviet Union that they were trying to um, trying to hold on to. They were pro-Russian to be sure, but it's it's like a, a little piece of the Soviet Union that it, that continues to exist into the 21st century, not recognized by anybody. Uh, yeah. Certainly, Moldova doesn't recognize it, but Moldova is largely spe Romanian speaking. Um, you know, the, the area around Tiraspol is this thin finger of land is the as the Transnistrian Republic. You know, de facto they're independent, but they're not recognized by anybody else. Now in the um in the um, in after Ukraine became independent in 1991 with the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, the the south and eastern part of Ukraine was largely Russian speaking. They didn't really care much about Europe. They had no desire to join Europe. People in the western part of Ukraine, and that's where the um, um, that's uh, where the city of Lviv is located. That's an area that that at one time had belonged to Poland or Austria. You know, it had been handed back and forth. It's it very much western oriented. They wanted to join the European Union. They wanted to join NATO. But the people in the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine did not want to do that. So Ukraine was divided along an historic boundary that had separated the Russian Empire from the old kingdom of Poland uh, prior to the 18th century. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, so, so, um, and I thought, you know, from the very beginning that, that the quest on the part of Ukraine to join NATO, I thought it was, um, or the European Union, I thought it was, it was um, not a sensible, not a, not a wise uh, 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 quest on the part of Ukrainian governments. Uh, and, because and why would you... Why would you say that? Because I mean, Russia uh, did invade. So would that not? Well, have... well, no, no. We have to go back because we're in a different we're in a different um, situation now. So mm -hmm. going back before February of of 2022, the country was divided, and I and mm -hmm. I had thought that it would be very foolish for for Ukraine to try to join NATO, because at the with with the breakup of the Soviet Union, we have all of these border clashes between Armenia and Azerbaijan, between Georgia and Russia. And so forth, and the the idea that NATO should be committed to defending one side of these border disputes that existed after the breakup of the Got Soviet it. Union, it, it makes no sense. You know, yeah. it's it's very probable that NATO is already too large as it is. Yeah. You know, because because um, um, um when uh, Donald Trump was president, he started to call into question uh, NATO and American commitments to protecting the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Which of course some sent the Baltic states into a panic over that. Yeah. But you know, realistically, would Americans, American young people, want to go over and to defend um, Estonia, for example, from a, a Russian invasion? It's yeah. possible and probable that NATO is spreading itself too thin, um, at least as a defensive um, organization. Now, the way that NATO was developing prior to this year. It seemed to me that NATO was actually functioning more as a collective security arrangement for its members to keep them from fighting each other. Mm. There were several times after 1952 when Greece and Turkey joined NATO, there were several times that Greece and Turkey almost came to came to blows, primarily over Cyprus, but also over the um, over oil in the Aegean Sea. Yeah. But but the fact that both countries are part of NATO prevented them going to war. And this is the way that NATO was developing. So in many respects, it made sense that Eastern Europe would want to be part of NATO because it would extend the collective security agreement into the Eastern part of Europe. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, in principle, Russia could have been part of it. There so was, was no there a real... missed opportunity to pull Russia into NATO? Um, probably. There were joint exercises about 20, 25 years ago between NATO and Russia, uh, joint military exercises. And, and, but but once, uh, once Putin came to power uh, and began to revive this notion of this, this extended, expanded Russian empire, it changed everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, and and he saw NATO being on his um, on the, uh, at his front door, as it were, as as a threat. Yeah, which I don't think it needed to have been, but this is what happened. But so now, what happens is that is that Putin invades. This is the twenty fourth of February of this year. Putin invades, and whom does he take on? He takes on the very people in Ukraine that were most sympathetic to Russia. Yeah, it's the it's the Russian speakers in the southern part. Uh, and the eastern part of Ukraine, people living in places like Zaporizhia and Odessa, and uh, uh, you know all of these other other um, uh, other cities that 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 are almost completely Russian speaking, those mm-hmm. are the people he's attacking. Yeah, it's it's a stupid thing for him to do. Yeah, he's he's um, antagonizing the very people that are sympathetic towards him. Right? That were sympathetic to him. Mm. So now so now this historic uh, division within Ukraine. Uh, Putin erased that almost completely overnight. Mm. So, so he's almost you, he's almost uh, Ukrainianizing the parts that were were on the exactly edge. exactly yeah. he's created a united Ukrainian nation where one did not exist before. Mm. It's, it's 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 an extraordinary extraordinarily stupid strategy. So so how do you how do you reconcile that tension then? Like how would it have been mm. better to have addressed this? country that was fragmented in a way yeah. that um that dealt with the the sovereignty issue and also right. um you know not everyone's going to agree so how do you sort through that well i think i think i think ukraine um i think ukrainian governments should have um pursued a um, um they should have pursued a policy of neutrality mm-hmm I don't think they should have tried to join NATO because that 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 antagonized Russia. Okay. And I think I think people living in the West miscalculate. Yeah, I guess. What would yeah. you say to someone who's like who who would who? I, there's an assumption that Russia, in that statement, that Russia yeah. was responding to that to that dynamic versus the idea that yeah. what if Ukraine had been. Um, uh, been willing to to negotiate and they had come up with something and then russia still asserted a claim on its territory how, how would you speak yeah. to that yeah i mean that's sort of a what if situation I, you know i i think um i think at at at, at this point i mean my fears um you know and this is i i used to teach this subject um you know when when i was um when i was still um uh, at this undergraduate institution, I was uh, I, I taught this subject. It, it it started out as Soviet politics, and then it, it, it morphed into Russian politics, and then Northern <laughs> Eurasian area studies. You know, yeah. so it was a course that went through different uh, uh, different um, um, incarnations, as as it were. But I thought, you know, the only way that Ukraine could become part of the European Union is if it if it um, um, acquiesced in its own partition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which I didn't think was a very good idea because partitions, you know, I, 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 you know, my relatives on my dad's side have personal experience with partitions and being on the wrong side of the border and having yeah. to having to flee and become refugees. 
you know, so that's that's something I'm, I'm not a fan of partitions. This is what happened when India and Pakistan were partitioned back in, in 1947. There are just huge numbers of people died as a result of, of that. It was a very, uh, uh, you know, just a horrific um, um, event that, that took place. You know, this partitioning of the old um, Indian Raj into India and Pakistan it just left huge numbers of people on the wrong side of the borders and subject to reprisals. And it was just a, a, a horribly vicious thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess that's where I wonder, like, you know, uh, Putin seems to want to restore the Soviet Union. Um, and I, you know, what does that specifically mean? But it, but it does imply yeah. that, that, that Ukraine is just one piece of more to come. But yeah. is that oversimplifying it? Well, it's, it's, you know, he does want to restore, he would love to restore the Soviet Union to its former, or Russian, you know, Russia yeah. Federation or whatever he wants to call it, to its former borders, you know, there, but that's, that again, that's been part of the Russian political culture for, for centuries, you know, this yeah. idea of expanding to try to neutralize one's, um, one's uh, potentially um, aggressive neighbors. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, there, it is true. I mean, twice in the 20th century, Russia was invaded from um, from Germany, uh, yeah. you know, and Russians have have long and in the nineteenth century it was from Napoleon, you know. So yeah. so these are not these are not irrational fears. Yeah, you know. So, I, but I I don't think that young Russians, young people living in Russia who have no memory of the Soviet era, you know, this idea of restoring Russian glory it doesn't really resonate with them. Yeah, and th this is why when when Putin announced a call up of uh, of military call-up of young men you know you had people queuing up at the borders to leave the country you know yeah. they, they they this doesn't resonate with them you know he's he's a, he's an old man putin is an old man now you know his late 60s and wants to try to um, um to restore russia to its greatness this is something that may have resonate with uh, with older russians perhaps but young people they have no memory of that they, they don't really mm. care so in that sense there's a there's a legacy component that's tied into this that's um, fading quickly i think so yes yeah yeah now right. how how does that relate to the the chinese taiwan situation is, is that similar yeah. or is that or do the people of china um all uh, think that taiwan is, is that a generational gap in, in the chinese taiwan situation um that, that's that's difficult to say i i i don't know as much about the chinese situation as i know about russia because russia is something that i that that I that I studied in a more in a more focused way. I even yeah. studied the Russian language, you know, a long time ago, and have retained very little. Of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, China, um, at the you know, Taiwan was controlled by Japan from 1895 up until the end of the of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it it very briefly was reunited to the Republic of China, but then of course the Republic of China ended up being exiled to Taiwan by 1949 when when um, Mao Zedong's um, Red Army ended up taking the red, over the rest of the country. So now what we had with, you know, during the Cold War, there were there were clashing cha cl clashing claims between the People's Republic of China that claimed Taiwan and the Republic of China that was in exile in Taiwan and claimed the whole of China. So yeah. these were, you know, clashing claims, different regimes. Uh, you know, now after seventy some years, the uh, they have developed into two different countries. Taiwan yeah. is uh, is basically its own public. It's a thriving democracy. It's um, um it's no longer, you know, for all practical purposes, it's not the Republic of China. So yeah. now we have these historic claims that each might have some legitimacy to them, uh, but nevertheless, we're in a different world right now. 
Yeah. Um, China, I would suggest to you, is probably not going to um, try to conquer Taiwan. Maybe I'll be wrong. You know, I, I've been proved wrong before. Uh, but I think China is very much aware of its international economic standing. It's an economic powerhouse. And I don't yeah. believe that the current government of Xi Jinping in Beijing wants to do anything to 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 jeopardize that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, they may make uh, they may do a lot of saber rattling. Maybe they'll send ships into the into the South China Sea. Maybe they will um, uh, make threatening moves in some in some way. But they also know that 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 they could become a pariah state. Yeah. You know, and, and they, I don't think they want to have it happen. I don't think they want they want their trade relations to suffer yeah. as a result of that. So I think that, you know, I think Xi Jinping, I you know, obviously, I don't know him very well, but I think he, he's he's probably a lot savvier than, than Vladimir Putin is. Yeah. So back to Russia and Ukraine, then, um, is there an argument to be made to push back? I mean, you kind of made it in a sense yeah. of like, well, Russia is antagonizing the very people that were sympathetic to him, yeah. to Putin. Is there also an argument to be made that the way they're conducting the war, the horror of how they're, you know, killing and torturing people is is another transcendent argument to be made? Like if you have to take the oh, land yeah. through that means, then there's something yeah. wrong, even though you think this is a holy war of sorts. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, the, um, the principles of justified warfare was put forward by such people as St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, uh, and and their successors. You know, the idea, there, there are these um, in bello criteria of justified warfare. So, you know, in, if, if you, you have to go to war and you've exhausted all the other alternatives, then you have to fight fairly. You know, you don't target civilian populations. You, you, you target military um, targets uh, to try to incapacitate the uh, the military um, uh, um, prowess of, of of the opponent country that that would be legitimate but to target civil civilians to target apartment buildings to target schools you know that that that's the sort of thing the terrorists engage in yeah you know so that it makes Russia look like a terrorist state yeah uh, yeah so now we're in the situation where it does seem to be that you. It seems to be escalating, although perhaps it could move into a sort of stalemate um, in a way. Um, but NATO seems to be escalating in terms of running their own nuclear exercises, wanting to create a sort of an Iron Dome type system to protect its nations from Russia. How do you make sense of, of that escalation and, and where that goes from here? It's, uh, you know, the, the nuclear, <sighs> nuclear weapons are... Um... You know, since 1945, no state has ever used nuclear weapons because they don't really, they don't serve a military, militarily rational purpose. Okay, because they don't, um, you know, they, they were, the, you know, the, the, the two times that nuclear weapons were used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were used against not military target. But against civilian populations, you know, and now we have come to understand that that's that's tantamount to terrorism, you know, to, you know, targeting civilian populations, you know, arguably the um, the use of nuclear weapons in, in Japan might be considered war crimes. Yeah, uh, you know, but it, it, we've we've come a long way since since then. Um, yeah. You know, we've, we there has have been efforts to set up a rules based international order, um, American um, uh, military uh, personnel 
take uh, just war criteria and very criteria very seriously. In Iraq, there was an effort to uh, to avoid collateral damage. You know, there's always going to be collateral damage in, in war, but to try to avoid that to as great an extent as possible. You know, Russia is not governed by those kinds of um, those kinds of, uh, of 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 standards, those kinds of norms, and it, it it looks as though Russia, you know, it's 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 engaging in brutality, but it's doing so in a very incompetent way. So it's showing up the weakness of uh, of of the Russian military. You know, yeah. it's an embarrassment to Russia right now. China right now is a fair weather friend to Russia. Russia is sitting on land in the far east that once belonged to China up until about 150 years ago, the territory where Vladivostok and, and Khabarovsk are, are located. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're long in the hands of Russia. But, you know, if China were of a mind to try to take back some of their territory <laughs> from Russia, this would be a good time to try. You know, yeah. I don't want to give them any ideas because Russia is bogged yeah. down in Ukraine. Well, so, and I have, I have thought that it seems like uh, Putin's vision of restoring the Union or making Russia wonderful again might actually lead to it further fragmenting and splitting up. That's oh, it's it's quite true. Yeah, yeah. The well, essentially you generate the opposite yeah. result. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So, um, is there anything else you would add? I know we're kind of closing up our time here, yeah. just on this topic of 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 territorial sovereignty and and uh, yeah. situation. Yeah. Well, I maybe I, I could make some general statements because I think um, the issues of territorial sovereignty, you know, it, it's it's almost impossible to try to find some kind of transcendent principles or generally agreed upon principles by which we can say, okay, this side this side is one country and that side is another country. You know, because borders have moved over the course of centuries, boundaries have moved over the over the course of centuries. And and really, um, you know, history plays uh, um, a, a dominant role in determining where boundaries are going to be going to be set. You yeah. know, so Russia can say, well, Catherine the Great occupied Novorossiya. Novorossiya still belongs to Russia. But there's been a lot of history that's taken taken place since then. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not, this isn't the 18th century. It's not the 19th century. Uh, you know, it's the 21st century. And a lot of things have changed, including the breakup of the Soviet Union. And yeah. that that has has left de facto borders in, in place that, um, um, uh, you know, that, that, that we would be very unwise to try to uh, to try to question. The African Union uh, uh, in, has uh, has its own policies with respect to borders in Africa, because those were set by Europeans mostly 1885 and, and afterwards. Now, they don't resonate with the cultures on the ground, but there are these countries called Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, the other Congo, which belonged to to the French prior to 1960. You know, all of these countries, the borders were set largely by Europeans, but the um, African Union says, don't play around with those with those borders. Mm. Um, and because, because you know, all hell will break loose if, if we try to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, we didn't set the borders, but we inherited those borders and there's not much we can do. Uh, uh, you know, maybe we can have grand negotiations to change the borders, but that would be a huge... It, it would it, it would be a hornet's nest. It would be Pandora's box. You know, you can use all of these, um, you know, <laughs> different yeah. cliches to describe it. But um, yeah. Well, it sounds. I mean, generally speaking, part of what I'm also hearing from you is it's not necessarily how it ought to be. You know, I think of yeah. sin. You know, sin has a way of sort of breaking things cross generationally through relationships, and it has its effects and consequences. 
And ultimately it's not how it ought to have been, but we have to face the reality of those, those, those consequences and those tensions and dynamics. And so it seems to me that the, the model for that is to, to look at Christ who essentially waded into that dynamic of, yeah, it's, it's a big mess. Um, but through sacrifice and love, there, there may be a way forward. I, I would hope so. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we're probably in a better position now than we were, say, at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, you know, when you had these multiple competing empires that were all in this kind of, kind of Darwinian struggle for, for supremacy, you know, and, and, you know, China, uh, you know, it, it has a sense of its own sphere of influence. Uh, Russia is, is more obviously expansive and it has been for a very long time. But, but I think most of the countries of the world are not like that. Yeah. And I think that's something that we can give thanks for. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, we're, we have practical consequentialism that, that may make those types of things less likely because people will pursue things that are more fruitful than war, right? That's right, yes. Yes. At least in the long run, maybe not in the near future, but <laughs> no, that's right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Any any other thoughts on this topic? No. Well, just thank you for, for having me on a second time. And I enjoyed yeah, our yeah. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. So tell it to everyone that you've got your books. Uh, what are they? How can they find them? Uh, your blog. Tell us about what you got going on and how people. Can yeah. Connect yes. My, my blog is called Notes from a Byzantine Right Calvinist. And you can yeah. you can find that pretty, pretty easily over the search engine. Uh, my first book is, is called uh, Political Visions and Illusions, and it's uh, basically a kind of survey of political ideologies. It's, it's, um, it's been out in the second edition since 2019. It's been translated in Portuguese and Spanish as well. Uh, and my second book is called We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God. And that was published by, uh, by um, uh, Wittgenstock in Eugene, Oregon. And you can find that uh, as well easily online in the in the standard booksellers and so forth. Yeah. And um, so yeah. So and, and you're welcome to follow my blog if you're at all interested in my work with this organization called Global Scholars Canada. Um, you can write me. You can find my email address fairly easily, and I can add you to my list. Okay. So I have one uh, one last question. Um, so your your blog is the Byzantine Calvinist. So is there a difference yeah. between a normal Calvinist and a Byzantine one? <laughs> well, it's kind of a tongue in cheek moniker because it's a it's a reference to my uh, my uh, Greek roots on my paternal side. Okay. So I have a, I have a lot of relatives who are are Greek Orthodox, uh, okay. Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians, and uh, and it's kind of uh, you know so I'm 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 a Reformed Christian. Uh, definitely on the side of the Reformation, but I also have a, a lot of affinity with the uh, with the Eastern Eastern Christian tradition as well. Okay, and yeah. how does how does your Calvinism uniquely uh, tether into the the uh, the ideologies uh, concept? Like, in terms yeah. of like, is there a unique uh, fusion there that sort of uh, well, that... well, you know, re the, the Reformed Christianity, you know, of which Calvin was one uh, representative, uh, uh, has a big emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Yeah. And so, you know, the, this idea that God is sovereign, that means that any earthly claim to sovereignty is, is going to be very much relativized. Yeah. So in terms of what about free will of the individuals who choose sovereignty other than God, how do you sort of tie those together? Um, well, uh, freedom of the or world. Or human responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I, I prefer human responsibility or human authority, if you will. You know, yeah. um, all human responsibility is constrained. You know, the idea that, that we can simply choose 
anything we want to, we can choose our own identities, which is what people believe now, that we can kind of choose to remake institutions in any way that we, that we like. Um, I think that that's very that stands in, in considerable tension with our recognition of God's sovereignty. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.